Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hello and welcome back to Snowcast. I'm Jon Snow and this week's guest is the poet and writer Sir Ben Okri. Ben was born in Nigeria, spent some of his childhood in London before moving with his family to Lagos on the eve of the Nigerian Civil War. In 1978, Ben returned to London to study. By 21, he had published his first novel. And at the age of 32, The Famished Road won the Booker Prize. His latest publication is Tiger Work, a collection about the climate crisis. He writes with urgency about our suicidal relationship with the Earth. And he believes that we must imagine the end of things so that we can imagine how we will come through this existential crisis. I first encountered Ben's brilliance when he shared a poem about the fire at Grenfell Tower on Channel 4 News, which captured the injustice, suffering and loss. It was a privilege to catch up with Ben and hear about what he calls his most important work. Ben O'Cree, perhaps I should really call you Sir Ben. Or do I have to wait for the sword to come down on your shoulder? Oh, John, between us, it's always Ben. (laughs) (laughs) Ben, you were born in Nigeria, but moved to London when you were very young and went to primary school in Peckham. Can you tell me about your younger self and your early reading habits? Well, yes, there's quite a bit to tell. Um, Younger self came to London when I was about a year and a half, left very hot Minna to rather cold London, which I think was a... A bit of a shock, not just to me, but to my mother. And I remember our first winter, mum shivering, me watching her shiver and being rather struck by the extent of her shivering. That's that's kind of stayed with me. And then going to primary school, a place called John Don's, and um, discovering a great love for reading, for literature. I was probably the most annoying kid in the literature class, always sticking my hand up. What do you think triggered it? My interest in language. Yes. I think it was always there. I think it was also partly helped by the fact that my father had a very keen feeling for language himself. He started to be a lawyer, so he not only had his African languages, but he also had Greek and Latin and English, and there were books around the house. He loved the way words uh, worked. And my mother was a great storyteller. She always told me stories. I think the whole relationship between language and imagination was always part of my upbringing. And then there were always books around the house. Mm-hmm. Um, my father, you know, had a subscription to the Times, which I, you know, one day I just found myself picking it up and actually being able to read the words. I was nearly four at the time, um, to the astonishment and I think bewilderment of my mother. Reading the Times at, at four would be bewildering to anybody. Well, I think my, my mother was particularly um, uh, upset by it because it went against her ethos of showing that you can do something. She comes from an ethos where if you're very good at what you do, you conceal it. It's part of the tradition she was brought up in. The first time she saw me reading, the the first thing she did was send me to my room. Wow. Yeah, it had a lasting, it still has a 
lasting effect on me and my character. Did you ever talk to her about it later in life? No, because it became part of me, so there was nothing to talk about. What was it like to return to Nigeria at the age of seven? Did you have any memories of your mother country by then, or were you really experiencing it, frankly, as a completely new experience? Well, you know, the thing is, when we're in London, family members and friends of dad and mom will come around the house, and invariably the talk went back to Nigeria, and they, they always reminisced about their their childhood. So I had from them indirect perception of Nigeria. Not a real one, not a concrete one, but I remember listening to them talk about food, initiations, school, growing up, working on the farms, the first jobs. Were they talking in the vernacular? They spoke in dad's language, spoke in Orobo, they spoke in English, they spoke in a mixture. And at that age, you understood that? Yes. So you were bilingual at that point? Yes, a little bit. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And then the day came for us to return. We went back by boat. At school, when my friends knew I was going back to Nigeria, they kind of gathered around and told me that it wasn't a good idea, that I maybe should run away and not go back. And I remember asking them why that was. And they said, well, it's a bad idea because in, in Africa, you know, people live in trees and lions roam in the streets. And you really don't want to be doing that kind of thing. So I, I considered running away uh, rather than going back. Um, I told my mother about it. She was appalled. She said, do, do I look like someone who lives in a tree? But I had no reason to not believe my mates at school. So when we went back to Africa, as the boat approached the shore, I remember looking keenly at the trees to see if there were people <laughs> actually living in them and looking keenly at the shore to see if there were lions roaming around. And um, when we docked, to my astonishment, I found... <sighs> Streets bursting with life, with vitality, with cars, lorries, trucks. You know, there were skyscrapers. And then there was this enormous welcome from the family. And there began immediately a new and extraordinary chapter of my life. But the other extraordinary thing was that you were going back to a country at war with itself. Well, when we went back, the country wasn't at war. War was brewing in all the sort of ideological talk, the talk of tribes, the talk of politicians. It was brewing, but on the surface, it seemed like a very happy, very happy country. Um, I, mean, I was struck by the vitality, the, the joy, the, the celebration, the, 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 all the communities got on well together. You know, we lived in a neighborhood where people from all the tribes lived, and we all spoke English and Pidgin and, and Yoruba and bits of Hausa. And, uh, you know, I did, there was no sense of any tensions. But then I was seven years old, so I wasn't aware of the more adult things that were going on. I was only aware of what filtered through. But the Biafran War, which gripped Nigeria, must have had an extraordinary impact. It did. It, it um, split my life. Mm. Um, split my life. It split my childhood because my mother's half Igbo and my father is, is a robo. And so... Um, you know, we had to hide my mum. The war was personal, the war was domestic, the war was in the house. There were people who were killed all around me. There were young men who were, you know, when the soldiers came into town, they just hunted them out. And I remember once I went for a walk at night because I got fed up with being kept at home when I was supposed to be at school. And seeing this man who'd been killed in the street and his eyeballs were, were huge. And I couldn't understand why his eyes were open and why his eyes were so big. Then somebody kind of swooped me up and carried me back home, and it was dad. And after that, I kind of fell into a hallucination about eyes, and I became ill, and I've developed this eye problem, and I had to be taken to, to the village to be treated by herbalists. But what an incredibly complex time, because you had this very domestic struggle, if you like, 
as to what was wrong with your eyes or whatever. And it was in the context of a country was it was war with itself. Yes, it, it wasn't just at war with itself. It was a country that was tearing itself apart, a country that was ripping its destiny to pieces. After a successful act of independence, it seemed like Nigeria was going to be one of the great nations of the earth. It really did. The promise was there. People were talented. We had such gifted scientists, poets, musicians, architects, artists. The energy was there. The mm. vitality that was there. The hope was there. Everything was there except for this thing that came along and divided us. I mean, you've spoken of the stories that were told to distract you, to stop you thinking about what on earth was actually going on around you during the war. Do you think that we have a basic need for storytelling in times of crisis? I think in times of crisis we need story more powerfully, actually. You know, people tend to see storytelling as an avoidance of reality. Actually, it's the most indirect way that we can confront reality more powerfully. Uh, you see, the thing about reality is when you try and confront it head-on, as it were, sometimes it can be too strong for you, it can be too overwhelming, it can be too overpowering that one's response to it is slightly paralysed. But storytelling gives us the ability to be our complete selves while dealing with this difficult reality as best as we can. Storytelling contextualizes it, puts it in not only in the context of the human, but puts it in the context of the universe. Mm. My parents never told me more stories than during the war. It was a way of keeping us sane while we kept mum hidden from the dangers out there. But while she was hidden, she was telling you amazing stories. And, and I'm wondering whether she was drawing on traditional stories or did she create them herself? They tended to be traditional stories. Mm -hmm. It's hard to grow up in Nigeria. Um, I'm not going to speak for the rest of Africa, although I can assume it because I have many African friends and they, they confirm the same thing. It's hard to grow up in our part of the world without being um, <laughs> loaded with stories. Stories that your mother tells you to illustrate the lessons of life. The stories that your father tells you about tradition, about their ancestors and where they came from. Stories they tell you to help you understand your place in the traditional scheme mm. of things. Stories were the oldest means of communicating the most important information that they wanted you to learn. So important as you describe it. And yet we at the same age up in the north, in Europe, we're reading, you know, Enid Blyton. Well, some people like Enid Blyton. <laughs> <laughs> some people like Enid Blyton. But I'm trying to contrast what we were being exposed to. You have been exposed to children's books. Yes. And, and, and I was being exposed to stories told by moonlight, by mum and dad and uncles and relations and, and, yeah. But that's a beautiful thing. There's an important difference. And I'm not going to choose between them. But the thing about being told stories is that the stories come not only in themselves. That's the thing about stories being told to you. They don't come only in themselves. They come also with the voice, the authority of the person who's telling it. So the story is never just itself. It's also the whole history behind the person who's telling it. So with mom, it's the whole of her experience because she was a princess from the Agba tribe. So all of that was, was, was loaded into her stories. And with dad, it was his wisdom, his ancestral tradition, all of that. A story is never innocent. It, 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 the voice of the person who tells you also has all the other voices that have told those stories through the ages. And also stories, they come also freighted with the intelligence of the person who's telling you. There's another additional charge to stories being told, whereas when you read it in the book, you get the wisdom of the person who's writing it, in collision or in collaboration with your own innocence. 
that's it. It's just those two things. Whereas when you're told a story, it's like a tradition is speaking through the teller. I miss the telling. I think we need to bring more telling of stories into modern education alongside the reading of stories. Can you tell me about the first article that you had published in Nigeria and what age you were and what it was? Oh, yes. We had, um, my father's life had undergone a bit of a change. I noticed it tends to be the case with many writers. Something, when they're children, something changes in the life of their parents. And it often is a change for the worse. And so we found ourselves on the outskirts of Lagos. And for the first time, I was living amongst the working classes, uh, living amongst people whose lives were difficult. And I noticed, for example, just going down the streets, which were unpaved and water was brought in the back of trucks rather than through pipes. I just noticed so many injustices I'd never seen before. I noticed, for example, that landlords could just simply chuck out a tenant without any notice, any warning, and throw their entire luggage, their entire property out into the street just on a whim because they want to get someone else and jack the prices up. They can just have someone throw out all their things outside in the street just like that, and there's no law to stop them doing it. I was absolutely outraged the first time I saw this. I wrote an article about it and sent it to the Nigerian Times. I didn't expect anything of it. Two weeks later, my father was reading a paper <laughs> in the living room, and I heard him suddenly call out my name in a very unusual way, and I thought I'd done something really, really awful. And I turned up and he says, what have you been doing in this newspaper? And I said, well, what do you mean? <laughs> and he showed me the essay. And um, that was the beginning of a whole new way of looking at the possibility of words. And he was proud. He was a bit astounded. <laughs> <laughs> he was a bit astounded. That, that makes it sound as if he was actually rather concerned. He was, he was concerned. He was doubtful. I think, you know, the idea of magic is never far from our perception of extraordinary events growing up. So when something happens, it feels like something magical is taking place and it needs some kind of explanation. But magic never needs explanation. So I think Dad was hovering between the sense of something magical having taken place and something in York to be concerned about because it involved his son. He was a lawyer? Yes, my father's a lawyer. At the time, he was a lawyer for the poor, people who couldn't afford it. He sort of represented them. It was his thing. And I remember the house, there'd be a long line of people who'd come to him to represent them. They had no money, no one else to turn to. But I can feel, as you're growing up, all these forces of humanitarianism, concern for the other, a real commitment to try and make other people's lives better. It's an extraordinary world in which to grow up. The need was so great. Yes, the need was so great and it still remains very great. There's so much injustice in the world and definitely in Nigeria when I was growing up. I wrote many articles about these things that I saw. Not all of them were published. Well, tell me about the first one you got published. Well, this one was about the landlords. And then not long afterwards, and I don't attribute it to my article in any way, but not long afterwards, about a year or two later, there were some tentative laws to restrict the powers of landlords, being able to throw out tenants without due notice. But, you know, the relationship between the writer and injustice in society, between the writer and, and corruption, between the writer and the, and the misdeeds of governments, was something bred into me very early by the tradition of writers in Africa and in Nigeria. And I think because literature was always used as an anti-colonial tool, after colonialism, after independence, literature was then used as a tool to sort of hold governments to account and to draw attention to social failings. So it just simply really carried on its responsive and responsible activity. And when you came to write, whether you wrote poetry, whether you wrote plays, whether you wrote prose, 
that was part of the atmosphere that you breathed. And I just mm. breathed that in alongside being able to witness uh, injustices at a very close hand. It really mattered what you were able to do. As a writer, it, it did matter because nobody else was speaking for, for the poor and for the disadvantaged. And, and there were so many, so many of them. And it was very powerful to, to realize that one voice can make a difference. What did your family make of your concern for people less fortunate than them? Well, my father wasn't sure that that was the best way to use my talents. He thought I'd better serve society. I'd serve society better as a lawyer, as, as, as he was doing. I think fathers tend to be very linear in that sense. They tend to think that their children should follow the line that they've taken. Was there a monetary interest as well? Well, possibly. I mean, uh, you get more money as a, as a lawyer than you do as a writer. And you have to also understand that uh, literature, writing was not really a, an established profession or way of being in Nigeria. All the writers in Nigeria at that time, up to my generation, up to when I began to write properly, they were all lecturers at universities. They all had, they all had other jobs. Writing was something that you did on the side. While it was very important, it was not your main activity. Was that what kind of drove you to perhaps go back to Britain and get involved in higher education there to perfect your writing? Yes, I came to England because I, I went to write. As, as I told you earlier, I wrote all these articles, all these essays about the conditions of the poor. And I, then I wrote short stories and I wrote poems. Many of the short stories were published in women's magazines. <laughs> it's true. It's many writers got their leg up in, you know, in, <laughs> forgive the phrase, really, really got started in, in women's magazines. That's the place where they publish short stories. I, in men's magazines, they have no feeling for publishing fiction. I don't know. It's a failure of the male imagination, I guess. And I wanted to learn how to write better. And at the time, I read my way through my father's library. He had a terrific library of books, which he brought back from England. He had the, the Greeks, the great classics, the, all the famous Penguin classics. So I read my way through the Turgenevs and the Chekhovs and Russian literature. And um, I wanted to write. That's what I wanted mm. to do. So I came to London to study literature. So what was the passage of time between coming back to Britain and writing your first novel, having it published? Oh, I brought my first novel with me. I'd written my first novel You'd in already Nigeria. Written it. Oh, yes. written. Yeah, I began it when I was 17 and mm. finished it when I was 19. In England? In, no, in Nigeria okay. and brought it with me. It was a second draft of a novel that was called Shadows and Shadows. Not very good at the time. I came to England and st began a whole new set of reading. But it was a rare perspective. There was not a lot of African literature published at that point in Britain. There wasn't. There was just, uh, uh, at the time, there were just people like Buche Mechita. Um, there were West Indian writers, people like George Lamin, Samuel Selvan, uh, V.S. Naipaul, of course. Mm. Um, but not African, not many African writers. And if I, I remember when I brought the novel with me, I, I didn't think about all of that. I really, <laughs> I, I really did not think on a... Uh, that there was going to be any relationship between race and the difficulty of publishing books at all. Um, I just believed the world of literature as I'd received it from Chekhov and, and, and Maupassant. You wrote well, the world read it. That's what I believed. But there you are in your late teens, 19, I think, and your book is accepted by a, a British publisher. Yeah, I sent the book off to a thousand publishers. They all turned it down. And then one morning I got this letter um, and I, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. Um, <laughs> seems to be a life of getting letters that you can't believe what you're seeing. <laughs> and there it was, after two years. So the book came out, this novel called Flowers and Shadows. By the time it came out, I had changed. I'd become a modernist. I'd been reading my Joyce and Wolfe, and I'd been reading a lot of modern literature. So I was not the same person 
that wrote that first novel. And when it, when the first novel came out, I was slightly ashamed of it. I was like, yeah, I moved beyond this. It doesn't speak for me anymore. But that's the journey you're talking about. It's begun. The minute you feel a distance from the work that you've just published, something has accelerated. Did you have the confidence that you were on track, even though you were publishing at the same time a book that you were not now fully behind? Yes, absolutely. Um, absolutely. I still did the publicity for the book as best as I could. <laughs> no, I didn't tell anybody that, I, you know, that I'd moved beyond it. I didn't, I didn't say that. But the thing is, I'd already started writing my second novel. And I was at university. I was at university then as well when the first novel came out, which was a you know very amusing to be a published writer while you're still studying literature. It's one of the strangest, strangest things. But I remember those times, and I remember people talking about you coming forward. Well, it was uh, Africa's bursting with things to say, John. Mm. Um, Africa's bursting with stories. There's going to be more of that. Africa is, you know, I tell this story about the fertility of Africa. You go to anywhere in Nigeria and you've eaten a fruit, an orange fruit, for example, and you drop a seed, you come back the next day, that seed has sprouted. That's the fertility of the place. It just can't wait to grow things given normal conditions. And I think the story of the continent, there's our suffering, our wars, the fecundity of our people, uh, the energies, the way in which history has, has, has collided, just given Africa a tremendous amount of stories to tell. And I came bursting with stories to share with everybody. And, and, and The Flowers and Shadows was just, was just a beginning. It's just, it just took a while to learn the craft. That's the thing. The stories that you have in you to tell cannot come out till you have the craft in which to tell them. Mm. It's the strangest thing. It's as if you can be mute inside yourself because you haven't found the art with which the self can speak. It's very odd. What consolidated the discovery of the way you had to be to write? Well, I tell you what consolidated it. It was a crisis. Um, I'd written my second novel, which was called The Landscapes Within. It's very much a modernist novel. I was exploring the stream of consciousness of Joyce and Wolfe. I'm fascinated by that because I... You know, we always describe characters in African novels in an external way. I was fascinated by being able to give an inner voice to the people. Because once you can hear people's inner voice, you have to deal with their humanity. And I always felt that the major problem of peoples is that we're not facing one another's humanity enough. And literature isn't tremendous. The minute you encounter someone else's humanity, you have to deal with the enormous nature of their presence on this earth. And with the second novel, I came to a crisis, John. Um, and the crisis was this. I suddenly realized, after I'd finished it, that the form in which I was telling the story and the Africa that I remember, the Nigeria that I remember, the, this fertility I talk about, this, this chaos, this wonderful energy, that the two things did not match. The, the way in which I was telling the story, the way in which I described, and the place I was writing about didn't fit, so I had a crisis. Sounds like an absolute shipwreck. Yeah, it was a major crisis. It, it, I was silent for four or five years, just trying to work no. out what, how can I find a language to tell the richness and the multi-layered quality of this place in which I'd grown up? How can I do that? The language of Jane Austen didn't help me. The language of Joyce didn't help me. You know, the language of, of Trollope didn't help me. I needed another language. I needed something I could play on many levels at the same time. Um, while being ostensibly a, a clear story. It was, so I went through a lot of experimentation, a lot of, went back to the short story form, I took everything apart, I went back to the beginning, I taught myself to write as if I was a child of two, learned the language all over again, took it apart, opened it up, and then began with the short story, and then I found this language. All of this 
done in Britain and not in Africa? Oh, it was done here. I needed, yeah, it was done here while I was <laughs> while I was going through my homeless phase. That demands of you a very strong character because a lot of people get wiped out by being homeless. Well, you'd be surprised. The thing about being homeless at that time for me was that it gave me space to think and it gave me the space to observe. But I was a kid. I was young. I was in my, you know, I was in my early twenties. I was an idealist. I was, a, I was a romantic. For me, it was part of the beauty of the human condition. I mean, if it happened to me now, I'd be very upset. But for me then, it was not. It was a kind of adventure. Um, hmm. I, I don't. I don't recommend it. I'm not going to in any way recommend the the, the the collision of homelessness and the romantic temperament. But it's just it's it's what helped me at the time. And I always had books. I was I had huge books of poetry I was reading. I always had notebooks. I was making notes about about the world, about what what the color of the world looked like between three and three thirty. Hmm. You know, I'd, I'd be on a park bench, fascinated by the change in in the color of the air as night slowly, imperceptibly faded. These tiny little things were fascinating to me. There are so many forces in play. You could have gone bonkers. But in fact, it turned you into one of the most creative writers of our time. Well, how do you know, how do you know I didn't go bonkers? <laughs> well, <laughs> how do you know that being creative isn't bonkers? It might be functioning bonkerhood. I mean, in that, that that some people would have been kind of permanently derailed by what you were going through. I think maybe I was also lucky in my my dad's genes. My dad's a very solid man. I watched him cope with the difficult times in his life when he went from being very successful and, and rich and had to start all over again and worked his way back up. And, you know, and I watched with tremendous admiration because I saw no difference in the man. I really saw no difference. He'd go to work with the same buoyant um, attitude with a, what seemed like a song in his heart, striding down the, these ghetto streets as if he owned them. I, I, for me, it was one of the most powerful lessons um, that, that we fundamentally we don't have to be affected by what's happening to us that there's something in us that that it makes it possible for us to be greater than our condition whatever it is um i don't know that's a philosophical point and very difficult to suggest it to people but i think living with it close up with my dad and my mom going through with it with the with the war the way she conducted herself during the war she never succumbed to bitterness and hatred of the military and of the other who sought to kill her people I think I was just fortunate in having very good, strong examples very close at hand. And I, I didn't know that I had those examples. I didn't know that it affected me in that way. But from what you say now, quite clearly, I, you know, apart from personal temperament, I think it was also having good examples that helped me. How do you look back on that period? I mean, was it a period of crisis or a period from which you knew you would emerge stronger and better than you'd entered it? Well, it was a crisis period. There's no doubt about it. It was a crisis period. But I find crisis very fertile. Mm. I find crisis fascinating. Crisis is when, is when we learn the most. When you're falling apart, when your world is not coherent, is when, you know, the most questions come up. I find myself asking questions about just about everything. I used to remember, if it's a homeless period you're talking about, I just remember stopping outside restaurants and just watching people eat. Um, watching them eat their steaks and their salads, and I, I was just—I was just fascinated by how one survived in the world and what what it, what it took, what it required. I asked more questions during that period than I'd ever asked in my life before that. It was—it was invaluable. And this neatly, in a way, takes us to where we are right now. I mean, your new anthology, Tiger Work, um, it addresses the climate crisis, and you're interested in cusp moments. Your last novel captured the innocence of Africa before the transatlantic slave trade. 
But is the climate crisis now the cusp of the moment? I mean, this is it, the biggest that you've confronted, that we as a world are confronting. This is the biggest crisis that humanity has, has faced within its entire memory. Uh, for the 100, 200,000 years in which we've been a sentient, intelligent species, I think this is the greatest crisis that we're facing. But the strange thing about it, John, is that not only is this the biggest crisis we're facing, this is the biggest crisis we're facing in full consciousness of it. All the other crises, we didn't know we're going through them. They just came upon us. You woke up one day and, and a world war was upon you. You woke up another day, there was a, another world war upon you. You woke up one day and, you know, you were living in a cold war where, you know, you were afraid of nuclear atomic bombs. Um, this one... We have been warned about it for two, three decades. We, we know what we're doing. Every time we get into our cars, every time we fly, every time we have our shirts washed, we know that we are contributing to uh, a destabilization of our atmosphere. We know it. Uh, scientists have told us. There have been conferences. There have been cops. They've, they've told us. You know, most people are aware that we're living right now in very unstable environmental times. Do you think that we struggle to imagine our end and dystopian fiction plays an important part, that it can wake us up? Well, in this new book of mine, Tiger Work, I have um, uh, a few stories that can be described as dystopian. One looks at the end of the human race after we've messed up and didn't heed the climate warnings and everything collapsed and everything failed and there was no human race anymore. Most of the species wiped out and just the trees. And then an alien species comes to the Earth 20,000 years later to look at this planet and finds evidence of bits of stories of what we're like. For me, the value of a story like that is to give us the imagination to help us to imagine the consequences, the full consequences of what we're doing and our refusal to face what we're doing. Sometimes dystopian fiction, John, is one of the most powerful ways of helping us map and visualize the road that you don't want to go down. That's, that's all it's saying. Down this road, ladies and gentlemen, the writer is saying, lies absolute disaster, devastation, horror, terror, hell, nightmare. And I'm going to describe it for you in a very human and very accurate way. So that if you want to go down this road, please knock yourself out, go down this road and get wiped out. The writers take great pains to make it real. So that, well, when you see what it is, you say to yourself, no, we do not want to go down that road. We know, we've imagined it. We don't like it. We're going to find another road. And that's what the dystopian fiction at its best does. It shuts down the road you do not want to go down and opens up the possibility of the imagination dreaming up a better, more manageable road into the future. You're listening to Snowcast with me, John Snow, and we'll be right back after this. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? 
Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. You write that, that our relationship with nature is broken because we treat it simply as a resource. And in one poem, you quote a passage from the Tao Te Ching. Can you share that with our listeners? Oh, yes. Wonderful. It's from the major poem in the book, because the book is made up of poems, short stories, essays, letters, interviews. It's a kind of suite. This one is from um, the poem called The Broken. In the Tao Te Ching, there's a light crammed passage which says that the sage loves the world as they love their body. If the earth were our body, would we do half the things to it that we're doing? Take a nuclear blast to the kidney, smash the heart with metal spikes, frack the intestines, mine the brain with explosive rain? Nothing can save our world but love. Gosh, it's fantastic. Very vivid. It rings all sorts of bells that have been ringing on our heads, but nobody's told us what they mean. Well, I think there's quite a few of us, John, trying to use the power of words, the power of literature. You know, I did a lot of research while trying to put this book together, and I got so full of the research that I couldn't, like, I couldn't write. You couldn't process it. I couldn't process it. So I had to flush the whole thing out of my system and start again from complete innocence. And that's the only way I could have written this book. Facts overwhelm us. Um, facts are important. We need to know the percentages, the temperatures. We need to know these things, but they overwhelm us. And, uh, and after a while, they, they stop us thinking. Mm. And I think this is where literature, where art and science, working together can really help people to digest and understand this dangerous moment that we're drifting through as a species, John. You also have quite a strong feeling that we need to love the world, that this is one of the ways we can deal with the crisis that we're in, and this love is the most efficient way to save humanity. That's what you're telling us. Yes, a kind of active kind of love, really, not the lazy love that you might get in you know, romantic movies. Um, a kind of a brave... An active love. I say here in the poem, for love is the last power that stands between us and extinction. I think one has to summon the power of love here, the power of love for our world, and the power of love for a possible future that we can have. I also say in the book, it's something I've been thinking about for a while, what the meaning of this crisis is. I don't think this is just an ecological crisis. I think it's a humanity crisis. I think the crisis is us, you know, that we don't know where we are as a species. But we have reached a point, John, where we have outgrown our relationship with our sources of energy, but we don't know it. We have outgrown oil. We have outgrown fossil fuel. We have outgrown all of these elements of energy that we use that in using them actually destroys our world. So in, in the poem, I have this line. Can we become something more needing a new name? We have got to achieve that rare thing, a quantum leap in our life's possibilities, from devouring the earth to making a world, from waste to conservation, from pollution to transformation. Everything we need is here, sun, sea, earth, 
wind, imagination, will, vision, love, mind. We need to leap right now to the next stage of our evolution. You've collaborated with Writers Rebel, who are part of Extinction Rebellion. Do you think that art has a, a really vital place in activism? Yes, I think so. I think art can sometimes be the highest kind of activism, really, uh, because it can activate the imagination, activate the heart, and activate the understanding. In which case, that little book is a time bomb. I hope it's a finely calibrated time bomb that doesn't blow up in the streets, but just blows up gently and powerfully in the minds of those who encounter it. Not one that destroys them, but one that explodes with light and possibility and hope. But if an, enough people read it, there's a real chance of, of progress. I don't think it takes that much, you know, John, for us to make progress. It just takes realizing where we are, being honest about it, and everybody being committed to doing the little they can and to holding their governments to account, voting in such a way that the governments cannot avoid the climate crisis, that it should be one of the highest things in our priorities in all the governments of the world right now. And it's our job as citizens to make it impossible for them to avoid this fact. Aren't you, in a sense, also making the point that actually progress is not only about voting, but it's also about protesting? Yes, yeah, sometimes a protest is important because um, people just don't listen. Mm. Um, and protest is a very powerful way of making people hear. In a sense, your solution is both rebellion and democracy. Rebellion, democracy, art, imagination, love, uh, sensitivity, dialogue, conversation, all of the above. Um, absolutely. The, the, complex, the complex sphere by which we persuade one another of the truths that we don't want to face. Um, I don't think protest alone can do it. Sometimes protest just turns people away, just makes people um, close up. So we need conversation. We need dance, we need play, we need storytelling. We need all of the, all of the ways in which, because this is, this is too vital to make it a them versus us. This is too vital to demonize the other about. We can't, we can't have demonization. We have to activate um, as many hearts as possible. This is not about fighting in, in the traditional sense. This is about the highest form of persuasion, um, seduction, if you like, as well. But the big problem seems to me that our conventional politics are not embracing this. Then it's our job to make them do that. It's our job as citizens to make them do that. It's hard to imagine the Prime Minister of the day embracing this and taking it forward. Oh, I don't think it's hard to imagine that at all. If the next election came and it became very clear, if we put enough pressure out there and made it an atmospheric thing, made it so much part of the atmosphere, so much part of the conversations in the air, that... If the government wanted to get elected, he had to deal with this issue. If we made it so prevalent, in spite of whether he or she is not really interested in climate change, but out of pure self-interest and the quest for power, they will have to embrace it. I'm quite happy with people embracing climate change, climate crisis and ways of dealing with it, even when they're cynical about it, even when they don't really believe in it. I don't really mind whether they believe in it or not, so long as they act. You know, there have been so many laws, so many things have been changed in this world by people who didn't really believe in it. <laughs> but they got, we got the laws passed, and from then on we could go about changing society. So 
I don't really worry much how we get there. If we mean, if it means putting pressure so that this guy or this lady, if they want to get back in, they realize that they have to say the words that they don't really believe climate change and put past the laws. I don't mind whether they do that or not, so long as we we get humanity to that point. But can we imagine the Prime Minister of the day, Rishi Sunak, actually embracing what you're saying or even understanding it? I can see him getting around to that because he's a pragmatist. He's a politician. All politicians are pragmatists. Uh, and and power, power has a wonderful way of, of clarifying people's intelligence about issues. If you realize that to get power, you have to go through this hoop, and this hoop is climate change, then we just have to make it such that they have to go through that hoop. That's our job as citizens. What you write and draw attention to is something which is deeply, deeply worrying. But you're optimistic. You're optimistic that humankind can sort itself out, that even the people in charge of the British government at the moment might wake up and understand what you're talking about. They might not understand it, but they can act in accordance with an understanding. Um. <laughs> <laughs> That's a subtle way of putting it. <laughs> uh, yes, I am optimistic because I think human beings, I think humanity is, is very flawed and we've done so many appalling things on this planet. But humanity and human beings are also extraordinary. I think we're amazing. I think we're, uh, I think we're fascinating and uh, and a surprising species. And I, when, as I say often, when our back's against the wall, there is no telling what we can't suddenly accomplish and turn around and do and change and imagine and bring about. That's us. You know, I think we're amazing, but sometimes it requires extreme crisis for us to explode this genius that we have within us as a species. Are you hopeful about our future? I mean, I note that your own daughter is already an environmental warrior. Yes, she is. She teaches me about plastic. <laughs> <laughs> plastic is her thing. And, uh, and she also has this extraordinary idea, which I am promoting uh, on her behalf till she can do it herself. She has this idea that, you know, the government should turn off the lights in its buildings from 11 o'clock, that just turning off the lights in government offices across the land itself can make a, a contribution. It's just little things like that. The ideas of children. Well, I must congratulate you on becoming a knight, which is wonderful. And I think a lot of people would think, God, hasn't he not said enough already to put them off? No. <laughs> Do you think they're looking your way? I, I don't know if they're looking my way, but I think my voice... Um, you know, as a writer, over the years, you get to learn ways of throwing your voice so that it can be heard in certain places. Um, they can compress it. They can shut the door. They can <laughs> put all kinds of things around it so it's not heard properly. But you, 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 you learn to be able to throw your voice in such a way and create such a vibration with your voice that it can just get through these muffled barriers and be heard outside. Um, it's something that you learn. And I think this knighthood just gives me... a, a uh, an extra magnification to my voice, and I intend to use it to draw attention to this environmental disaster that's hanging over this beautiful race of human beings and all the species of this earth. Sir Ben, congratulations, and thank you very much. Oh, thank you, John. It's been an extraordinary conversation. Thank you. That was Sir Ben Oakley, who I very much enjoyed catching up with as he publishes an important new work. As ever, there are links to Ben's work in the episode description. I'm Jon Snow, and I'd like to say thank you for listening to Snowcast. I'll be sharing another episode next week, so please subscribe on your platform of choice and spread the word. Tell your friends. Goodbye for now.
Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.